what you hearing. This is what you hearing. Listen. This is what you hearing. Listen. This is what you hearing. Listen. X go give it to you. Hi listeners, in these episodes we've taken some of the recordings from the Estate Agency X7 event that took place in November 2021 in London and we've broken them down into separate podcasts, the different talkers, in, uh, different speakers into different podcasts so that our listeners can get the benefit of hearing what was said even if they weren't able to get along to the event. And in this episode we have the recording from Campbell McPherson. Campbell is a great entrepreneur. He's also been marketing director for Zurich and Virgin Wines. And he specifically goes into companies and he helps them manage change, which we found was a really hot topic at Estate Agency X7 because of the massive change that's taking place in Estate Agency, whether you are still working the old way and thinking about working a new way or whether you've already started working a new way, the biggest problem when it comes to any sort of uh, change is how to manage it with your staff. How do you get through it and how do you make sure that it doesn't just turn into a, a wasted exercise whereby everybody gives up and, and the management team are just seen as idiots for bringing the wrong sort of thing into the company. So he gives a presentation around how to make successful change in your business and some of the things that you should be looking out for. Obviously, it was a live presentation, so he might refer to some things that he's showing on the screen, but it shouldn't take anything away from the podcast. If you do decide that you want to watch the presentation, then you can search for it on the Iceberg Digital YouTube channel. Just search for Estate Energy X7. Hope you enjoy. What a fantastic venue. Thank you for having me to uh, speak with you today. Yes, you've talked about data. You've talked about systems. Now we're going to talk about the most important and the most difficult part of all, and that is people. So change is inevitable, but successful change isn't. In fact, one of the greatest quotes on change is, is this one. The world hates change, and yet change is the only thing that, that, that has ever bought progress. And the fellow that said that is Charles Kettering, who was one of the most prolific inventors in the US that you've probably never heard of. He worked for General Motors for in, the, in the 20th century. He worked for General Motors. He, he is responsible for the patents that, that form most of the products in our automobiles today. He, he's responsible for Freon refrigeration at, um, at DuPont, when he was in DuPont. And he's right. We hate change. We humans, we just don't like change. Sometimes we even convince ourselves that we don't want change and that we don't need change, but we know that that is a lie, for change is the only thing that has brought progress. And actually, it's the only thing that, um, it's the only thing that, that keeps us going, keeps us moving, because the only alternative is the status quo. And if we've learned nothing in the last two years, we've learned that the status quo doesn't last for very long. Ah, there's a, there's a lag. Here's a wonderful statistic. 88% of change initiatives actually fail. Now, change is really, really tough. We all know that. 
88% of change initiatives fail. When, when I saw that, it was, from a, a, it was from a survey from Bain & Co. in early 2016, and I was just thinking of writing my first book, which is The Change Catalyst, just thinking of writing, writing that book. And I saw this, and I knew I had the hook for the book, because the first thing I wanted to answer or ask was why. Why does change fail? 88% of change initiatives fail. When I first saw that, I thought, that's rubbish. It can't possibly be. Then I thought back through the decade or so that I had, well, 25 years, sorry, I've been helping organisations to lead change. And I, and I thought that, do you know what? That is true. The vast majority of change initiatives, business strategies, mergers and acquisitions fail to deliver what they set out to achieve. And the big question is why? And I'll give you a one-word answer that is, summarizes the entire Change Catalyst book, and that is leadership. Why change fails is a failure of leadership. It's a failure of leadership to actually enable their people to want to change. I'm Campbell McPherson. This is my website. Please have a look uh, right through it. There's lots of videos. There's lots of downloads. Uh, there's, there's interviews. What I do is I help CEOs and leadership teams and leaders to enable their people to want to change. I help them to build cultures that embrace change, and I help them to lead change, run workshops at Henley and, and, and all over the place on leadership, on strategy, and on leading change, and then also work with employees on how to embrace change as well. I've worked for lots of different organizations. I started my, my career accidentally joining the Air Force straight from school, as you can tell by my, my, uh, my accent that was in, um, that was in Melbourne. And um, I still hold the record for being the worst pilot ever to make it through to jets in the Royal Australian Air Force. It was statistically impossible that I was actually flying, uh, flying that jet. In fact, and the reason why is because I had to memorize the eye chart to keep flying. So if you want to fly in the Australian Air Force, all you need to know is C-L-E-D-H-B-T-V-O, and you'll be absolutely fine. Landings will be a bit sudden, but you'll be absolutely fine. In fact, my, my last flight was Area Solo up above Perth in 1984. Uh, I was doing aerobatics, uh, 20,000 feet, uh, barrel rolls, loop the loops. I came back in, I put the pin in the injection seat. I, I took the bone dome off and I put it under my, my arm and, and uh, with my parachute on my back, I sauntered into the, into the instructor's office. And this was two years before Top Gun, so I had no idea that this might have been cool. And I went up to my instructor and I said, sir, I'd like to resign. And all he said was, oh, thank God for that. So that was the end of my flying career, but the start of a million other careers, uh, as you can see. I've been marketing director of Virgin Wines. I was tapped on the shoulder to say, why don't we start Virgin Wines? I went, that'd be great, what as? And Rowan said, marketing director. I said, why not? I've never done that before. I was then head of e-business for the AMP group. Uh, I was HR director of a thousand person financial services company, strategy director for Zurich for the emerging markets division. It's been a career that is full of change and trying new things uh, at every single step of the way. And throughout that ridiculous, um, no, wrong one, uh, that ridiculous um, litany of careers, uh, particularly in the last five years, I've written three books. One is on leading change, which was business book of the year back in 2018. Uh, one that was about embracing change, embracing personal change, which Kogan Page uh, then published in 20, 
20, just last year, and the latest one is actually written with my wife, and it's called You Part Two, that the mighty Hachette has just published worldwide in the last couple of months, and it's about thriving in the second half of your life. So if there's anyone that looks a little bit like me uh, and uh, is looking to really you know, jump into their part two, then you'll enjoy that as well. And each of these three books have, a, have one key theme that I'm going to go through uh, in a second with you. But first, I'd like you to take out a piece of paper, if you can, if you can see, or your phone, and write or type the word nuggets at the top of the page. Because in any talk, in any workshop, if you can just take away one or two nuggets of insight from what I say or, or from questions that, that, that I've asked or uh, that I've been asked, then it'll be worthwhile. And I'm hoping you'll have a page full of nuggets by the end of this next 40 minutes. So please, whatever nuggets you hear, you see, you think of while I'm talking, write them down and then we can we'll share them with everyone else at the end of this talk. And here's some of the themes that I want to go through with you today. Firstly, is that leadership is all about leading change. And it doesn't matter what size of business you are. I was, um, I was standing on stage at, at, uh, in Singapore for the Australian uh, Real Estate Results Network annual uh, do. They all flew up to, all of these senior principals flew up to Singapore and we had three days of leadership and development. And, uh, and there was one day that was dedicated to change and strategy. And it was, it was fascinating just helping real estate agents look at their businesses like a business rather than a sales machine. And it was, it, it, it was fabulous. But what I'd said to them is, look, if you're not leading change, you're not leading anything. You're just managing the status quo. So leadership is leading change. The other, and that's really from the change catalyst. From the power to change, you find out that if your people aren't leading change, and it doesn't matter if you've got two people, five people, or 5,000, if they're not actually embracing change, then nothing is going to happen, because change is all about enabling people to want to change. Leadership is all about wanting people to want to change. And from the third book is a wonderful concept that actually my daughter in, in Sydney heard from a rheumatologist, and I love it, called radical acceptance. And it takes embracing change that one step further. It's, 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 accept, it's acceptance on steroids, frankly. It's actually accepting reality proactively to be able to actually do something about it. It's acceptance on steroids, but it's also acceptance with purpose. And we're going to talk about those things as well. So in the last 25 years, since, um, since I left Anderson Consulting, I was only there for a couple of years uh, as, a, as a senior manager in change back in the late 90s. And that's when I first found that change was actually a discipline, not just something that happened around you, that you could actually lead it, you could manage it, you could embrace it. And I found it fascinating. What I didn't understand about Anderson Consulting is they would fill the entire auditorium here with chevrons and make it completely bamboozling to the average human. And what they forgot to do was actually mention people in any of those chevrons. It was, it was it, it, what I found from that, the world's largest consulting company was all about systems, all about processes, and then just setting guidelines for people to follow. But weirdly, that didn't happen. So here are my five key truths that I've learned about change. And the first one might appear like a blinding glimpse of the obvious, but it's really not, and that's change is inevitable. Now, we know this, particularly in the last two years, for goodness sakes, in your industry uh, particularly. I remember we put our house on the market last February, February 2020. That was a really good idea. We took it off the market in April 2020, and then we sold it 
in August 2020 for more than the asking price. So I've lived through the, the roller coaster of emotions that, uh, that your industry um, has, has gone through because I went through it with you. All ch change is inevitable. The, the point about that, that change is inevitable, is that once you start to accept that it's not a project, that it doesn't have a start date and an end date, that it's actually part of life, then that's the first step to embracing change. The second key truth is that all change is personal. Even the, the most significant, the, the largest of organizational changes is actually a culmination of a myriad of individual personal changes. It doesn't matter how big or how small the organization is. All change is personal. And we all erect our own personal barriers to change. We all do it. We, I have my own default barrier to change. You have yours. Sometimes these Change barriers last about 15 seconds or so. Sometimes they can last a lifetime, as we will also discuss. And the fourth one is probably the most important, and that all change is emotional. People don't change, as we say in the fifth one, because they're told to. You know that. You, you try and change your system, your computer system at, uh, in your office, and just say, look, here we go, just use the new system. It doesn't work. We only change if we want to. So a leader's job, our job, is to help our people to want to change. And that's another BGO. It's another blinding glimpse of the obvious, but it's quite profound. As a leader, as a team leader, as a divisional leader, as a company leader, it doesn't matter how big the organization is, it's our job to help our people to want to change. So let me talk to you about the essential ingredients to sustainable change. We've, we've already gone through the fact that 88% of change fails. So how do we be the 12%, one of the 12%, one of the one in eight that actually succeed? And I'm going to go through a few of the key uh, messages in the change catalyst for you, because you are all leaders of change because you are leaders. Now, leadership today doesn't just have to be because of hierarchy. Leadership is about influence. So no, no matter where you are in an organization or a society or a community, you lead through influence. And that, to me, is what leadership is all about in 2021. But the first essential ingredient to sustainable change in your business is this clarity of what you're trying to achieve and, just as importantly, why. So just you're trying to achieve, all the organizations I've worked with have been very, very quick to put numbers on that. We're going to double the size of the business. We're going to uh, reduce, uh, reduce costs by 25%. Uh, we're going to increase EBITDA by, you know, by, by 50%. The numbers are easy, but we need the numbers and the narrative. And then you also need why. And why, you, it, it, there's two types of why. There's the real reason and the right reason. There's the rational and the emotional. We have to appeal to our, our people's emotions if we want them to change, and therefore we have to help them to change. Therefore, we have to explain and explain why they need to change. One of the key things, oh, actually six key things that I do with organizations is uh, press the wrong button. Is, uh, is, is I help CEOs and I help leaders to identify these six things, to address these six things in their business. I help to address their purpose. If your business doesn't have a purpose, if your business isn't crystal clear, in, that everyone in your business is not crystal clear about why you exist and for whom, then the business is doomed. It's going to be empty. When I was... Um, I was one of the founding directors of, of an, the largest IFA network in the country called Sesame. 
And, and when we put that together, it was five different companies that came, came into one. We had 1,000 employees. We had 12,000 IFAs that were out there in the marketplace. But the company was soulless. What we tried to do is to create a purpose, a reason for the business's existence. And we came up with this wonderful line, and it said that we exist to enable IFAs to run really successful businesses. It's, it's really simple, isn't it? You, know, it's, you, you, could, you could say that with, with, uh, with any network. A dentist network. I was speaking at a dental conference the other day. And, and it's the same thing with dental networks. Same thing with real estate networks as well. We enable IFAs to run really successful businesses, but the rest of the board couldn't buy into it. And they said, no, our purpose is to make profit. And, is, and fundamentally, what they meant was to pay executives bonus. They were offered 350 million pounds for the business that they'd paid 120 million for once we'd put it together. They turned it down because they thought it was worth 500 million. And eight years later, they sold the business for the amount of money that they had in the bank. And the reason, lots of different reasons, but it boiled down to it didn't have a purpose. It wasn't there for customers. It was only there to try and line the pockets of its executives. We also help people to go, what's our business model? How do we create shareholder value? What's our operating model? How do we actually go about actioning that? How do we operate? How does our operation actually reduce costs and actually increase sales? What's the magic that we want to retain? Now, with any merger and acquisition, that's really critical. What is the magic of your business that you want to retain into the new world? Or even if you talk about IT systems, what's the magic of the way you work now that works really well with your, with your customers that you might want to retain when you move to another system? But which ones of those are sacred cows that need to be frankly slaughtered? And, and which one of those are elephants? What are the elephants in your organization? The questions that no one dares to ask. The other essential ingredient to sustainable change is this, and it's all about implications. What are the implications of the change? Because every single change has consequences. Every decision has consequences. And one of the most important things to do is to try and think through the implications of the change before you make the change. But not just you sitting in a room with your, with your partner. You get your team together. You get your organization together and say, we want to do this. We want to move to another system. We want to buy another business. We want to double the size of, of our business. What are the implications? Let's think that through, team, and actually work out how we can head them off. Because as one of the greatest books that I've read on, on leadership teams is, is this, really simple read. But as Patrick Lencioni says, it's really quite simple. When people don't unload their opinions and genuinely believe they've been listened to, then they don't get on board any sort of change. I'll give you an example. I was running a, a workshop for a, a large um, investment platform. It was, it was the largest in the UK uh, at the time. And the CEO brought me in and said, Cam, we've got a new strategy, and I want you to do your workshops and get everyone you know, bought into my strategy. So when, I, when I'd taken my head out of, out of my hands, I said, have you actually talked to anyone about this strategy and ask them what their fears, their concerns, what the consequences, what the implications are. And he said, no. I said, right, that's the first thing we do. So we hired a ballroom. We got 100 of his, of his senior managers in a room. Martin stood up and actually gave the presentation about what the strategy was. It wasn't a strategy. It was a destination, but it's fine. It was, we're going to double the size of the business, double assets under management, stay number one, and triple the profit. You know, that was fundamentally what he, 
what he said over 20 minutes. And then I stood up and said, OK, what could possibly go wrong? And everyone tittered politely. And then, and then what happened is I said, because in your heads, you're, you've got some fears, you've got concerns, you've got doubts, you've got, well, does that mean we have to move premises? Does that mean that part of the business is no longer going to exist? There are implications to that strategy. Let's get them all out on the table. And we did that over an hour. We then prioritised them and spent the whole afternoon working out how we could overcome the top 10 issues that the top team had put on the table given the strategy. It was the best day of consulting I've ever been involved with because at the end of the day, everyone owned this strategy because they had their challenges out on the table and they could see how, they could start to see how they could actually overcome them. The strategy was becoming real, genuine and achievable. The third one, no, that's the second one. The third one is this. It's communication. We're shocking at communicating. We're humans. We think we're good, but we're not because we're just not that good at listening. And this is a really cool, cool little trope, if you like. No, not trope. Meme that I saw on the internet. And it's the biggest communication problem is this. We don't listen to understand. We listen to reply. I do that all the time. I sit there in meetings, um, particularly when I'm pitching something to a client, and I forget to listen because I'm I just want to jump in with my opinion, uh, with, the, with the killer fact that I was, that I was going to, uh, that I'd rehearsed beforehand. What we need to do is to slow down, we need to stop, and we need to listen to understand, particularly when we're implementing change in our business, because we don't have all the answers, but together with our teams, we do. This is a beauty. Emotion trumps logic every single time. In fact, there was a fantastic piece of research done 15 years ago by the Corporate Leadership Council on, on um, I think it was 100,000, no, sorry, 50,000 employees worldwide. And what they found is that emotion was four times more powerful than logic when it comes to change, when it comes to strategy, when it comes to employee engagement. We know that, don't we? So, but if you think about it, so logically, we are going to do this. Here's the strategy. We're going to put in a new system. We're going to double the size of the business. We're taking on two new people, whatever the strategy might be. That, and everyone goes, OK, that's fine. That's one-fifth of the way there. What we have to do is to work with our people to understand their emotions and to appeal, with them, to, appeal to them emotionally if we want them to actually not only get on board with the change, but to drive the change. And one of the big reasons why 88% of change initiatives and business strategies fail is we forget that humans are messy, irrational, emotional beings. Another thing is we have to focus on outcomes. How many organisations have you seen where process takes over everything? I was brought in to have a look at a project management office in, in one particular uh, organisation. And what I found was that every single bit of the process was perfect. The project initiation documents were filled in. The, the comms were sent out on time. Uh, they had meetings every month to reprioritize and, and, then, and reallocate resources. And nothing was ever delivered because no one was focusing on the outcomes. And these, if anyone has been involved with any large projects, you will, you will know what I'm talking about with these ones. Firstly is, Initial inertia. We have to overcome that. It's hard enough to go from planning to, to, to finish the planning, let alone go from planning to action. But this middle one, 
particularly if you've been involved in large, multi-scale IT projects in the, in the past, you'll know that large projects have a way of getting a, a momentum all of their own. It's like a locomotive racing down the track. They get, they get a huge momentum, and it's almost politically impossible to jump out in front of this train and say, stop, why are we going this way, and why are we in a train? But that's what we have to do. We actually have to make it politically okay to ask the question, to pause for reflection and go, is the outcome still achievable? What data, what insight have we learnt? Uh, and, and what should we change? Because as we know, the, the budgets of big projects and the timeframes go through the ceiling because we don't allow our people to stop, to pause, and simply without politics, without recriminations, to say, are we still heading in the right direction? Is this still the right thing to do? And no is a good answer, by the way. But the third thing I particularly love, the third inertia we have to overcome is complacency. Complacency is a disease that infects the successful. Actually, that's what I used to say. It's now a disease that infects a lot of organizations who think they're successful, but actually they're not, because there's a disruptor very quickly coming up behind them. But it's a disease that infects the successful. Blockbuster thought it was successful, uh, and then they turned down an opportunity to invest in this Netflix startup thing that they thought was utterly ridiculous. Kodak, we all know, invented digital photography. They thought they were successful because they was. Because they was? There you go. Bridgetor High School has got a lot to answer for. Because they were successful, but they were also complacent. So the CEO of Intel, who I really admired um, for many, many years, said this. Success breeds complacency. It just does. It's a phenomenon. But complacency then breeds failure, and only the paranoid, I like that, survive. So if you find yourself, particularly after these last, this last year, where you have been running around um, uh, being extremely successful, now is the time to sit back and think, OK, what is it about the way that we work? Am I becoming complacent in some area of my business because I've done so well over the last 12 months? And it's a question only you and your people can really answer. As an another essential ingredient to successful change is to ask yourself, how can I set my people up to succeed? Because your future, your success, is all about your people's success. That's what leadership is about. That's what leading change is all about. That's what change is all about. It's not really about systems. It's not about processes. They are key enablers to enable your people to do something even better and even, and, and even uh, more exciting for your business for the future and for them. So what do your people need to succeed? Do they, is it the system they need to proceed? Is it, is it, do, they, do they need empowering? Do they, what is it that they need to succeed? And actually, you know what? Ask them. Another essential ingredient to sustainable change is this, committed leadership, leadership that isn't complacent, that, that knows what it is being complacent, leadership that doesn't take its eye off the ball in any big change initiative that you might be doing. Because as soon as you do that, the entropy of change descends and, and the, the forces against change are enormous because 88% of them don't actually deliver what they set out to achieve. And the last one is this. It's you need to create a culture that embraces change. And I'm going to go through a couple of really interesting change curves in a second that just shows the roller coaster emotions that we go through when change is done to us and also 
when we instigate change ourselves. The central issue, as I said, is not strategy, it's not systems, it's all about people. We have to create the culture that people are looking to change. So ask yourself these little questions in your business. Are your people encouraged to question the status quo? Why, to ask, why do we do it this way again? And then ask again, okay, I get that, but could we do it a better way? Are they also open to new ways of working? I mean, it's easy to actually suggest new, new things, but actually to, to be able to embrace new things that, that are suggested to you is, is challenging. Do they continually look to improve the way that your business runs, because that's what you need? And are they encouraged to learn from failure? I'll tell you a silly story about uh, the Ritz-Carlton. At some point in the last decade, they banished the word failure from their corporate lexicon. So, so you weren't allowed to say failure, you had to use the word glitch, which is a bit American, but anyway, let's, let's move on for a second. So, so they used the word glitch, because a glitch is something you can recover from, learn from, and move on, where failure is fairly terminal. But are your people encouraged to learn from failure, and is their behavior aligned to deliver your clear strategy? And most importantly, is yours. The second book's about embracing change, and this is, this is just as important. You're going to have leaders who know how to lead change, but if you don't have people who are able to, are willing to embrace change, uh, then nothing will happen. And what I've, what I've found in the last 18 months is the ability to embrace change, particularly the sort of change that's been thrown at us in the last 18 months, is the biggest gift you can give your people. It's the biggest gift you can actually give yourself. So many leaders, I do a lot of work in financial services, so a lot of high IQ, low EQ executives, mainly male to be honest, but, but, uh, but of all, all genders are, are like that, high IQ and low EQ generally throughout financial services. And there were so many leaders turned to me and said, I never thought anxiety was a thing. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I knew, I knew it was a thing, but I never experienced it. So, up here, in my head, I knew that it was that people suffered from it, but I didn't, almost didn't quite believe it. And then March 2020 came along, and I was really anxious. I was anxious about the business. I was anxious about my parents. I was anxious about everything. And suddenly, I realized that anxiety was A, a real thing, and B, crippling. It was devastating. So when suddenly everybody instantly started working from home, and it wasn't that amazing how we could accomplish that without pages and pages of project initiation documents. You know, if, if, if I'd have turned around to one of my clients is, is a big insurer, if I'd have turned around and said, uh, by the way, in 10 days, you'll have everybody working from home and no one will be in the office. They'll say, I'm sorry, we haven't even completed the committees yet. We haven't even formed the committees to do that. That will take about 18 months. It didn't. It took about 10 days. But anyway, um, what, what we found from these CEOs is that, that they suddenly realized that anxiety and mental health were real. They'd been ticking the boxes until then because they experienced it you know, them, them, themselves. And so what a few of them went to do is, well, how do I help my people work from home, and how do I help them to embrace change? But also, they became empathetic leaders, not by being told to be empathetic. Suddenly, they realized they were able to empathize because they felt the anxiety and the, and the nervousness that the rest of their people were, were feeling. So 
what I'd like to, what I, what I did when I put this book together, this book was interest, interesting. The first book was written and then I did workshops on it. This one I did workshops on it and then wrote the book. Um, so embracing change is all about resilience, as we'll talk about in a second. But in putting the book together, I drew this simple little two by two, and I didn't think it would ever see the light of day. Particularly, I didn't think Henley Business School would then use it in the, in the leading change um, programs. And it's really quite simple. And it's, it's, its beauty lies, and its power lies in its simplicity. On the y-axis, it's the size of the change from big to small. Nothing exciting there. It's the x-axis where the magic is in this little, little chart. And that is, what's the degree of personal control that you have over the change? From none, this change has been done to me, to total, which is I'm in complete control. I've instigated this change and I'm in complete control of the change. Now, the bottom two quadrants we won't talk about. It's quite simple, really. You know, um, when I'm in complete control, it's a small change, then I'll book myself on a course or I'll come along here today. That's easy. That was an easy thing to do. It wasn't a big deal. And it's grow. Or adapt will be, oh, I've been forced to do some process uh, that I really didn't want to. Fill out a form. We're going to Paris tomorrow. Fill out a form. Um, swearing that I don't have a, uh, to have COVID, you know, a bit of a pain, but you just get on with it. You just adapt. It's not a big deal. It's the top two quadrants that are really interesting. The one on the top left, the burning platform quadrant, that is when big change is done to you. That is the quadrant that forests have been filled. Filled? No, they've been felled to write books about change management on, this, on that topic. And I called it the burning platform quadrant, because you, prop, you may remember, or you may know the story, that 20 years ago, 20-something years ago, someone called Daryl Connor, who was a change um, professional, he was watching the news, and he saw that people leaping off a burning oil rig in the North Sea and jumping with, with life jackets on, jumping into the tumultuous, freezing cold waters. And he thought, wow, there's a burning platform for change. Boom, boom. And we've used that ever since. Change practitioners and leaders and leadership developments and management schools have used that burning platform because it's a wonderful image. What is your burning platform for change? How am I going to help my people to want to change? I don't recommend setting the business alight. I really don't. I mean, sticks and carrots are a good combination, but it's evocative. And when we are in this particular quadrant, we undergo a roller coaster of emotions that I would like to share with you. And this happens in instances where the death of a loved one, getting a divorce, um, being made redundant, and a variety of other, other uh, smaller, less dramatic changes as well. But let's have a look at the change curve. This is a curve that I've adapted from the original change curve was, was actually called the grief curve. And it was written by a Swiss psychiatrist called Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Many of you will have known. Um, of her. She was in 1974 in her book on death and dying. And what she did is she helped people cope with, end their lives with a terminal illness. And she found that the emotions that they went through were predictable and profound. And they were the same emotions with a little lag 
uh, that their loved ones went through as well. So when it, she published this in 1974, and we change practitioners and, and leadership development people have taken this and actually made it relevant to the world of business because it really is. And let, let me take you through it. When big change is done to us, and get something on your head, being made redundant, um, you know, business going under, if you want to go for uh, something extremely uh, big personal change, um, then go for that as well. The first reaction, the first emotion that we feel is shock. We are literally like a rabbit caught in headlights. The second reaction, once the shock fades, is denial. This can't be happening. This just simply can't be happening. And actually, if it's, if it, let's go with the redundancy scenario, uh, once the leaders work out that, that uh, this is a stupid idea, then they will all, they'll all go away and they'll change their minds. Now, when the leaders don't, work out it's a stupid idea, we get angry. And that anger masks a whole host of fears. And after fear becomes depression in the trough. And we've all been through this at one time in our life. Actually, we've all been through this several times in our life because the change curve doesn't stop. It just waits for the next time. And the trough can either be big D depression in the worst cases or small D depression or just simply feeling flat. I've been made redundant twice. I used to say I was made redundant three times, but actually the third time was a salesperson who didn't sell anything. So I wasn't made redundant. I was just rubbish at my job and I was sacked. But the other two times I was actually made redundant and it came out of the blue. And it feels like a, bl a blow to the solar plexus. And I went through all of this. Once you finally come out of the trough, and the only way to do that is to rewire your brain after a rest and actually think, no, um, I want to change, I want to succeed, I'm still going. And your head can kick in with the understanding, your heart can then kick in with acceptance, and finally you can move on. Moving on, though, doesn't mean the end of the change curve. This is a profound uh, change curve. It's a profound experience, it's a profound roller coaster emotions that we all feel. When I was doing a workshop with one of the big fund managers on this, there was a, a lady in the audience who was shedding back tears. It was a workshop, so it was, there was only sort of 20 of us. And she was shedding tears, and afterwards she came up to me and she said that her father had just died three weeks before, and she didn't realize that the emotions she was going through during that period were normal. And she said, just to know that. I've been through all these emotions. I really loved your session, she said. I hated it as well, because you made me relieve all the emotions. But actually, just to know they were normal was a huge um, weight uh, off my back. Now, the thing about this change curve is it will change for different people. It will change for different, um, different circumstances. The amplitude, the wavelength, they will all change. But it's real and it's normal. So when you instigate big change, this is what your people are going through. And when, you, when big change is done to you, to you, just know that these emotions are normal, because all change is emotional. But there's another quadrant that nobody tells you about. And that is the quantum leap change curve. That is the emotional roller coaster that we go through even when we instigate change ourselves. I didn't know this existed until I hopped on a plane in 2014 and went off to Abu Dhabi. I got a job, a three-year contract with the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority to help them with strategic change. And I hopped on the plane. My son was going, was, was going to go off to boarding school uh, to finish his last, his A-levels, or to do his A-levels. My daughter was off to university. And I, it was a perfect time, really, to, to leave home. She hadn't done her A-levels yet. It was perfect. Um, but anyway, um, so then I, I hopped on the plane. And I instantly thought, isn't this exciting? I then thought, what have I done? 
I've broken up our wonderful little family prematurely because I've gone off for a job in Abu Dhabi. And, and then I started to think, oh my goodness, what have I done? And am I going to be any good at this job? I've never worked for a sovereign wealth fund before. What, 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 why, why did they hire me? How did I get through the process? And then it was remorse, saying I've had to close my consultancy down to do this. What if it all ends in tears in three months? What I did uh, when I was in this trough is I stopped drinking to start with. Then my head kicked in and went, come on, Campbell, for goodness sakes. Yeah, rational optimism. They've hired you because you're the best guy for the job. Um, and then genuine belief. But you are. You can do this, and you're going to really bring a lot of value to the fund. And then I stepped out of the plane to Abu Dhabi and thought literally into a new world and thought, I've just been through a version of the change curve that nobody tells you about. And it's real. When I was doing this, with, with, doing this workshop with... Um, one of my clients, the, the, the CEO had a wry smile on her face, and she stood up as we got to this, and, and she said to everyone, I just want everyone to know, I'm currently at genuine belief, I'll be fine, but the last few months have been hell. And everyone thought, goodness me, I didn't realize that was, was actually real. And it is. Change is emotional, and we have emo emotional roller coasters that we all experience during times of change. And these are some of the emotions that we have to learn to overcome, and we have to help our people to overcome. Denial. Then we need to observe our emotions. You know when you, you have attack of negative emotions and you have attack of negative thoughts? In fact, our brains have about 80,000 thoughts a day, and 50,000 of those are negative. And it's an evolutionary throwback to when we were being chased by saber-toothed tigers and you know, that sort of thing. It's the only thing that scientists can, can think of. But, and what we have to do is to look at those negative thoughts and detach ourselves from them. I had my negative thoughts on that plane saying, I've never done this before. I'm going to be rubbish. What if I'm terrible? Um, you're just good at interviewing. You're not actually good at the job. Uh, and all of those negative thoughts. And what I had to do was to stand back and detach myself from them and to say, that's interesting, and observe the negative emotions and the negative thoughts that I was actually having. And that enables you to put some distance to them and realize that you don't have to identify with the fear, the emotions, and the negative thoughts that are going through your head during times of change. So we can confront our fears, and there's lots of fears during change. There's the imposter syndrome. There's the fear of, obviously, financial fear, but there's the fear of the unknown. Um, there's the fear of being found out. Uh, in some organizations, there's a, there's, there's a fear of not have, being found out to not having changed earlier. We need to reframe our identity as another way of overcoming change. Um, but most importantly, I think, we have to voice our doubts and our fears about the change, and we have to help our people to do the same, because all change is about people. And all of that is actually about building resilience. And there's a whole chapter in, in this book about resilience. And what is resilience? It's simply the ability to embrace change and look for the opportunities. What, what the American Psychological Association says is these four things. Firstly, to be resilient, to increase your resilience, we can all increase our resilience, is to achieve things. Don't be a bystander, in my words, don't be a bystander to your own life or a victim of someone else's. We need to achieve things, sometimes in small steps. When we're at the trough of that change curve, just simply moving ahead in small steps will actually get the momentum that we, that we actually need. But momentum is everything. We need to do things, we need to achieve things. We all know people that will wallow in the trough um, of, uh, of really a victimhood, because the trough is where victims dwell. 
What we need to do is to help them out of that trap by helping them to achieve things and get moving. Another way to build a resistance, according to the APA, is, in my words, to like yourself, to trust yourself, and believe in yourself. And that starts with actually doing a personal SWOT of your strengths and of your capabilities, and actually to go, hang on a second, this is what I'm good at, and, and therefore, um, I like that. I trust that I'm going to be good at that, and I, have, I can build the trust that I can move forward and try new things because I really have been quite clear about my strategic core of my values, of my strengths, and of my abilities. The third thing is to communicate things calmly, and that's about being detached, and then to communicate calmly, and that's what resilience is all about. And the last one is to stay as non-attached or as objective as possible. But most importantly, change is all about attitude. Yes, it's, a, it's about being clear about what we're trying to achieve and why. Yes, it's about being clear about implications. Yes, it's being, it's being clear that, that we need to appeal to our people's emotions if, they want, if we want them to change. But mostly, it's helping our people and ourselves to change our attitude. And I think this quote from Maya Angelou is, is just fabulous. There's also another, another uh, similar quote from, or a prayer actually, called the, um, oh, who can help me? My brain's gone. It's the, the what? Serenity Prayer. That's it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Which is about give me the, the strength to know what I can change. I've got to um, totally bastardize it here. Oh, yes. <laughs> but it's, yes, so it's giving the strength, uh, the strength to know what I'm going to change and the wisdom to know the difference. That's the, sort of the summary of it. Um, don't you hate it when you start on something you think, I've totally forgotten that quote, totally. But let's stick with Myers. It's, if you don't like something, change it. If you can't change it, well, then you change your attitude. The last thing I want to talk about today is radical acceptance. This is taking the attitude of let's change, but it's going one step further. In the book, my second favorite chapter in the book, You Part Two, my favorite one is, is the chapter that Jane and I wrote called Menopause versus Menopause. Um, but this one is my second favorite. And it's all about radical acceptance and contentment. So it's, it's really aimed at people 45 plus thinking, oh my gosh, half time already, how did that happen? We've got a lot to achieve and we're certainly not fading away. But radical acceptance is this, a lack of desire for what we perceive others to have. And this, this helps, this is, this is a personal uh, help session, this one. The ability to appreciate what we have right now and we build this into the Embracing Change workshops. Uh, we, run, we run for organizations. It's also the ability to accept reality and the freedom to embrace the present and face the future with positivity. I love the term, I love this term, radical acceptance, because contentment, if you like, contentment is not, is, is not um, complacency. Contentment is being happy with where we are now and really positive and excited about the change that we can instigate in the future. Because radical acceptance is acceptance with purpose. It's acceptance on steroids. I'd just like to leave you with, with one quote today. And the main quote, really, is from Charles Darwin. And, and it's this. It's not the strongest of the species that survive, as you well and truly know. It's nor the most intelligent. It's actually the ones that are most responsive to change. 
Thank you so much for your time for the last three quarters of an hour. If there's any questions, any nuggets that you've got uh, out, of, out of that, a quick run through of, uh, of, of three books on change, uh, I'll be delighted to, to answer anything. It's what you hear it. It's what you hear it. Listen. It's what you hear it. Listen.